flag for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. Oh, that intro never gets old to me. That last highlight, in case you're wondering, is the Oakland Athletics call of Stephen Vogt's final big league at bat, and he hit it out. I mean, that is just absolutely ridiculous and awesome wrapped into one. I don't know. What would you call that? Ridiculousum? I'm going to make up some words because I'm going to the mood, everybody. Ridiculousum. Jason Churchill, I Joe Doyle, like FSS that. Plus Podcast. You like that, Joe? Absolutely. That's like pretty good. That. Ridiculousum. Yeah, I'm probably yeah, not. sounds the, like a cough first, medicine. I'm probably I'm probably not the first person to to come up with that word, but ridiculous. I mean, that is just a great call and a great event in Major League Baseball. And that was just last uh, year and a half ago or so. Uh, cool. FSS Plus Podcast, Future Star Series, futurestarseries.com. Things are ramping up, Joe. We're, what are we, under a month away or so? Yeah, we're under a month from, uh, from opening day for everyone. Um, every level of the sport, by the way, in about a month, will be playing regular season games. Every level of the sport, that's when you can hear it. You know, you can sit in your living room, open the door, and you can hear the baseball being played. A lot to get to on the show here. Uh, we're going to preview both the the National League West and the American League Central. And, you know, we're going to pick winners, key players and such, GM hot seat, uh, all that fun. Uh, and, you know, we'll tell you which three college baseball matchups you should be watching this weekend as well and exactly why from a draft standpoint uh before we get going joe i wanted to uh, i wanted to touch on something that came out uh came out a couple of weeks ago uh, i think the two of us pay attention to this sort of thing quite a bit and a lot of you out there do too but some fans may not know or even care but they probably should the league decided to change the schedule of the complex leagues uh, for basically for the second time in three seasons, but this this one is pretty drastic. In 21 and 22, the complex leagues begin their season basically the final you know you know five to eight days of June. In 21, they started on the 28th, I believe it was of June, and in 2022, they started on the 23rd of June. And historically, all the short season leagues, the complex leagues, the Pioneer League, the Horizon League, the Northwest League, all of those would usually start the third, sometimes early fourth week of June. So kind of right in that range and ended late August, early September, at least with the regular season. Um, last season, they started June 5. So that was a shift. Right? That's at least a two-week shift and in some cases a three-week shift. The last regular season game last year in those leagues was August 22nd, the complex leagues. Starting this year, we learned a couple of weeks back, the leagues are going to start a month earlier, May 4. And end about a month earlier as well. July 25 is the final regular season game of the Complex League. That's six to eight weeks earlier in the summer than 2021. This impacts, Joe, I think the biggest thing here for me, this impact, impacts who can play in these leagues too, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I. this is, when I heard this, I was like, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's other reasons to like this too. One, you just get everybody going at once. Right, especially if they're going to move this uh, this international signing day up to January, there's no point in having the the complex levels start as month as the, as late as they have. 
And the, the other mm -hmm. part of it is if a dude is absolutely mashing in the complex levels and their season ends in July, shoot, get them up to low A. You know, give them a little bit of time at the next level if you want them to continue playing ball. That's not going to be the case with everybody, but I just think having all of the levels start at the same time allows for flexibility and maneuverability with prospects and everything in between. It's, it's, a, it's a W for me. So let me play devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, why not start it in April then? If that's the idea, why not start in April? It seems like it's dumb that it's not. If the whole point is to get thing, everybody kind of going at the same time, why is it not? And two, doesn't this impact the draft quite a bit? I mean, maybe not in the top couple of rounds, but clubs might draft different players because they're not going to have anywhere to play them in their first year. And college players will have to go to full season ball uh, to be able to play. Because again, the draft is in you know early to mid July and the mm -hmm. complex leagues are going to be done July 25. So those players now, you know, it's one thing for college players to go to full season ball. But how about high school players? Like high school players are going to have no place to go. Most high school players in the draft, the vast majority are not ready for full season ball. The, the guys at the, at the top, the top couple of rounds, sure, maybe, you know, we saw quite a bit of that last year. But guys in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, 10th, 12th round, they're going to have no place to play. They're going to be kind of sitting on their thumbs, so to speak, in terms of playing games. Even if they signed immediately the day after, there's really no place for them to go. They're really not ready for that. They, I don't know. I think there's some downside to this. The, to me, at the end of the day, make the season longer? Can, can, can you extend yeah. those complex leagues 20 games, 25 games, 30 games, and go into late August anyway? I mean, maybe that's the answer because I do think there's some positives and some negatives to this. I think, well, I guess my pushback would be specifically with the college players. Like if it's a college pitcher, we've seen time and time again, chances are they're not going to throw anyways. You know, they've sure. already hit their innings limit in the ACC, SEC, mm -hmm. whatever. So they, I don't know if it's totally applicable there. With college position players, I'm a firm believer that if you're a college bat and you're being selected in the 20-round Major League Baseball draft, you better be ready to go to low A. You know what? You better be ready to go to low A. Unless you're beat up and you mm -hmm. need to just take the time, fine. The high school pitching thing, I, I, more and more we're seeing high school pitchers are just shelved. You know, they, they want them to get stronger. They want them to reduce their limit. But the high school bats thing is definitely interesting. You know, they certainly have the complex level exhibitions between teams and that's going to continue happening we saw a lot of that at the end of the year last year there's anywhere between eight and ten games that happen between you know like the padres and the mariners or the cubs and the mariners uh that happen at the end of the year so i think we're going to see that i don't think it's going to be um like affiliated you know actual games that count i don't think we're going to see that very much anymore but yeah i, I think this is it's it's doing a couple of things one it's certainly um accelerating the expectations for draft picks a little bit but i'm with you I, I would like to see the season extended maybe 10 to 20 games just to get a snapshot of some of these some of these draftees because if the season ends when it does it's going to be kind of hard to keep the hype of a draft pick if if we don't see any of them uh immediately after the draft and and to go a little further than that, a kid signs. I mean, I'm not again. I'm not talking like top fifty to eighty guys. I think guys, even high school kids, in the top two, sometimes three rounds, and the occasional guy even beyond that is just ready to ready for that challenge at least for a month, you know. Yeah. But I'm talking about guys in the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, tenth round having no place to play. 
The summer is over. These are 17, 18 year old kids. They're not the most disciplined human beings on earth. They're staying home, you know, far too often. And I don't mean home in, you know, South Carolina or New York or wherever they're from. They're going to stay in their, their apartments, you know, yeah. more often than you'd like them to if there's no game to go to. And you can do all the off season stuff you want. But in the summer, if they don't have very specific official assignments, I mean, what's going to happen to them? You know, it, it, you can't question. babysit 300 players. You know, that that's not the way this works in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, I just look at guys from from those rounds after, you know, maybe round four or five at, at least and think we're going to see more college players drafted. And it's it was already 80 percent. So the high school, I mean, maybe this is good for college baseball, but that shouldn't be the point here with complex leagues. Yeah, maybe they'll come up with something. Maybe this is just kind of, you know, the, yeah. the first step and, and they'll come up with something a little bit different for those uh, those high school kids. But I do worry about those high school kids, you know. And, yeah, and I then, think, you know, I'm 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 certainly with you. I You know, those those guys get drafted. They do have a, a fairly flexible, you know, come in for three hours, get your training done, get your testing done, you know, do what you need to do. And then it is kind of like, you know, I, I heard that a lot from the high school guys that are getting drafted, especially the high school pitchers. It's like, all right, we want you to come in from 8 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. The rest of the day is yours. And to your to your point, they're, <laughs> they've never lived on their own. They've never, mm -hmm. you know, uh, had time like that and freedom like that and money like that. Um, you do, it, it does certainly raise some, some eyebrows, but I'm just, uh, you know, selfishly, I'm just excited that we get to see some of these exciting, you know, international free agents that we hear, heard about start a little bit sooner. It, it just, it always felt so disjointed to have more baseball starting on June 6th when we've already had baseball going, you know, for nine or 10 weeks. So uh, there are some pros and cons. It's almost still like they're short a league or two. Hmm. <laughs> I think uh, hmm. I think they might be yeah. maybe short a few teams. Hmm. Hmm. All right, let's talk about the NL West. Um, Dodgers, obviously, they're going to be the choice in a lot of our our uh, our bullet points here. Uh, they made the biggest splashes. The Padres seem to have gone backwards. The Giants did some things. The D-backs did some things. Did the Rockies do some things? They sat around a lot. I don't know if they did some things, but I, I think it's I, I don't want to bore people with you know, let's just salivate over the Dodgers. So they, the Dodgers, obviously, I think you would agree, did the most to improve their team over the winter. So we'll spare you with Captain Obvious segment. But uh, Joe, w which club for you did the least in the National League West to put themselves in a better position? If even if we agree, they don't really have much of a shot to uh, to catch the Dodgers. There are a couple of wild card spots for this division to go after. Which team did the least? It's the Rockies. I, I don't know if it's necessarily close, right? I, we'll talk about the other teams, but I thought most teams in this division did quite well for themselves. Uh, Colorado, you know, I, I actually like Jalen Beeks. I thought that was a nice waiver claim. I think he could end up being a valuable piece, but... But we're talking uh, Cal, about a waiver claim. We're talking about a waiver yeah. claim. It didn't cost him anything. Cal Quantrill, kind of the same thing. Like, cost them next to nothing and I think he is a terrible fit in Coors Field with with mm -hmm. his with his arsenal. Um Colorado is not going to be very good in 2024. They're going to need some of these young players to take a step. You know, they're going to need Brendan Rodgers to become a guy. They're going to need Nolan Jones to prove it wasn't a flash in the pan. They're going to need some of these players that they've seemingly been counting on for 10 to 15 years uh, to blossom. <laughs> you know, Zach Veen's going to have to be helped. Like, mm. 
it's still it's it's what it has been for the last few years for Colorado. It's like we've got so many exciting players at the top of our you know prospect lists. Let's look forward to those guys. But the big league product looks like it could lose a hundred games. Can you? And I think they're projected to lose a hundred games by most of the projection systems. Their win total around sixty uh, in most places. Can you even see light at the end of the tunnel for the Rockies? When do they? Can you even see a window where they're they're where you'd believe they're competing in the next five years? Is there? Is that really there? Considering I, the division I, they're in, I, that's that's the thing. I mean, you said the the quiet part out loud there at the end, like. You look at this division and you're like, how are the Rockies? And I know they've had success in the past 25 years, but how are they going to supplant the Giants and the Dodgers and, you know, the upstart Diamondbacks and the Padres? Like, I, I don't I don't know if that is the bar that we should hold the Rockies to right now. I personally look at the Rockies and I go, OK, Adele Amador is close. They're going to have a very, very good outfielder, but the, the potential for a good outfield with Veen and Sterling Thompson and Jordan Beck and young Kiel Fernandez like the, and, and Cole Carrig is really fun too. Nice. They've got a lot of guys that are position players that should make that lineup really exciting in 2025, if not a little bit sooner. But then I, but then I look at this farm system and I'm like, okay, Jackson Cox blew out. Gabriel Hughes blew out. Chase Dolander hasn't blown out, but it's like, you know, give, him, he, he, give the Rockies time. Is that kind of what you're saying? No, I'm not saying give the Rockies time, but I'm like, he hasn't exactly been the the model of health over the past sure. few years. So sure. it's like, man, you, you draft all these, these, these arms and they pop. I, I don't know. Long story short, I look forward to seeing what this lineup will look like. Cause I think it is going to be exciting. But they've got so many tail or so many headwinds to get by to be a, a competitor. This so this it sounds to me like you're saying, at the very least, this is twenty six, twenty seven before they're good. I mean, even if they're exciting at twenty five, what kind of pitching staff yeah, they throwing together yeah. in the next twelve months, right? Yeah, I'd say exciting in twenty twenty five. You hope that they're good in twenty twenty six, but they have. I mean, they're ten pitchers short of being a competitor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's a wow, but it's like, yeah, I see that too. I can see that. You know, who do they have right now that absolutely is going to be here in two, three, four years performing consistently? Wow. They have a bunch of injuries. Everybody's hurt, and, and there's not a lot coming from the farm uh, in terms of pitching. For me, yeah, I would go San really, Diego just to go in a different direction here. You got more on Colorado here? Uh, the, the only thing I was going to say is if I was Colorado, the one thing that I would do is I would trade Justin Lawrence like right now because I think – He's one of the most interesting relief pitchers in Major League Baseball, and you should just move him while the value is 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 hot. I, I don't. I just don't think personally. I don't think Justin Lawrence is going to be a guy that's going to be getting big outs for the Colorado Rockies in 2026 or 2027. I I try to move him now or in July, and and you know you've got an eighth inning guy with control on uh, on your hands, and you're not going to need him. While his, uh, while the iron's kind of hot there, uh, had a pretty good year. He's had yeah. two decent years in a row from some ways, but 2023 certainly is best. 29 years old, that's five years uh, of control. So I certainly see where you're coming from there. For me, I'm going to go with San Diego because there's so much talent on this team that the front office should have been motivated to do some things to make the team better. And the Padres could have raised the floor, at least, of that rotation that was good last year. 
uh, with meaningful big league additions, and they didn't do it. As of right now, they've lost Blake Snell, who was their best starter last year, uh, to free agent. They still have a chance to go out and re-sign him, but nobody believes they're even in on it. Um, if, if they don't spend money, it seems like the club's additions have little impact on this roster uh, yeah. in in the right direction. I mean, that they're leaning on young guys, uh, including uh, some of the guys they got in the uh, uh, in the Juan Soto trade. I know Michael King will help them. But other than that, it, it seems like this is, um, you know, hey, let's hope Joe Musgrove is healthy and his offseason tinkering helps him. He's got a new slider and he comes back and is a legit, you know, kind of two, three behind you, Darvish. And then we'll just kind of fill in the rest. I think everything else on that team is good enough to compete in, in for a wild card, except that rotation. And they did so little. So if I was a, if I were a Padres fan, like I get the Juan Soto thing and I actually like the trade they made, but. How does AJ Preller not go out and get creative? Like I understand they were trying to cut payroll, but get creative, sign a couple of two, three million dollar guy, and they just didn't do that. And it's just really weird to me. Anyway, um, so yeah. I'm on the Padres there, and and we'll probably get back to talking about AJ Preller here in a minute or two. Uh, really quick, the Padres are they're they're maybe the strangest organization for me, and, and I think you'd probably agree. Like it's a it's an organization that cut what. $60 million off of its payroll, $50 million off of its payroll. And they still somehow have a lot of not good contracts. Like the mm -hmm. Xander Bogarts deal is something that they're going to deal with for a decade. Not saying mm -hmm. he's not a good player, not saying he was worth an 11 year deal. Um, you know, the Jake Cronenworth deal is not like an exorbitant amount of money, but it's he's, he's been bad. And at least recently he's been bad and they still owe him like six or seven years. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the rest of the team and you're like, okay, but they still have Fernando Tatis Jr. Who is, I, I don't know if I'd go as far as to call it a bad contract, but he might be one of the best players on the planet. Manny Machado is still an all-star level uh, third baseman. You know, they've got some pieces in that rotation. It's just, it's just a weird organization. And, I feel like we don't really know what the San Diego Padres are. And more importantly, I don't think people know what direction the San Diego Padres are going to go going mm. forward. Because even the even this even the farm system is a hodgepodge of, you know, Jackson Merrill types, but then guys that are four years away. Right. Yeah, they they're a little top heavy right now. But they have done and, and to me this is on AJ Preller and and I'm giving away something we're gonna talk about here in a minute, but uh AJ Preller is closer to being the worst general manager in baseball than he is the best general manager, general manager in baseball. And that's been clear to me for five years. This guy has done less with more in the farm system than any general manager in the history of baseball, as far as I can gather. Like, seriously, like I, farm system rankings to me don't matter. I don't care whether they rank first or 10th. When you look back at the talents that have come through that system, whether they kept them in their system or they end up trading them away for talent. They have done less. I mean, you you look at this baseball team, Joe, and and just from a win loss standpoint, because at the end of the day, that's what a general manager, that's what a president of baseball operations is going to be judged by. Now, Preller's been there since what 2015, I think it was. You know that they went Sounds they had right. 70, 74 wins in in 2015, and then they've gone 68, 71, 66, 70. In the shortened season, they went 37 and 23. They got to the division series and were swept. Then they were under 500. Then they had 89 wins and went to the NLCS in 2022 and got beaten five games. And they were barely a 500 team a year ago. 
Who in their right mind thinks A.J. Preller has done any sort of a good job here? He is absolutely horrible at his job. I do not understand anyone out there that's like, yeah, A.J. Preller is the guy still, including, you know, you know, current and past ownership. I don't get it. Were you I, I could have missed a number there, but has have the have the Padres only won 85 games one time under A.J. Preller? Dude, if you throw out the shortened season. Yeah, I do. I had, throw that out. If you throw that out, they've had two winning seasons, period. But just one, one over 85 wins. 80, 89 and 73, they finished second in the division. They got to the yeah. NLCS and lost in five. They were 82 and 80 a year ago. Other than that, the best season they've had is the 79 and 83 season and third place finish in 2021. The guy has had more talent there and a ton of money spent the last few years, too, and done so little with it. How hmm. is AJ Preller still employed? I don't is it a it. situation? How similar is the AJ Preller Brian Cashman situation? This will be year 10 mm-hmm. for AJ Preller. And I think that for two different reasons, Brian Cashman hasn't necessarily proven that he can put together a true winner without mm-hmm. tons of money. Whereas AJ Preller has just, I, I guess, <laughs> I mean, I guess AJ Preller hasn't proven that he can put together a winner. Um, Right. at all even even provided you know a, a blank check so mm-hmm. i don't know yeah i, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more as the episode goes on but that's a very i had no idea i think when you think of the padres especially with the narrative that surrounded that team over the last four seasons you think like you think it's a team that's won 90 games a couple of times but to to say they've only won 83 games once mm-hmm. under aj preller and they've never won 90 is actually a bit of a surprise to me having not seen those numbers in front of me. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It, it is similar to Cashman, and Cashman's had longer. And you talked about how Cashman, we talked about this last week because we did the ALS last week. Cashman's certainly the hot seat GM in that division for me, and I think he was for you too. But um, Cashman's had longer with big money because even in the years where they didn't rank number one in baseball in payroll, they were top five every single year under Cashman's uh, watch except for one. And that one year they were sixth. They've spent money. They've spent Padres level money every year. Cashman's been there. So and and you know he didn't inherit big contracts from Bob yeah. Watson in the previous regime. Those the Giancarlo Stanton deal is his. The the Cole deal is his. The Judge deal is his. And he hasn't been able to put together a consistent winner. Consistently better than the Padres though. But yeah, I'll say one thing about Preller and I. Don't know the guy. So this is coming from an unbiased corner. Um, he does know how to draft. And maybe he is a general manager that is better suited to be in a scouting director role. But you look at some... And now I'll get to the the caveat here. You, you get to some of the players that he's drafted. You know, they've still got Robbie Snelling. They've still got Jackson Merrill. Uh, Dylan Lesko looks like a beast. Um, you know, and then you have to have trust in guys like Dylan Head and... Um, you know, I know he's not a draft pick, but Leo Dallas DeVries and Ethan Salas, mm. they, they they know how to get teenage talent. And the other part of it is, you know, they drafted James Wood and Robert Hassel and CJ Abrams and Mackenzie Gore. Mm-hmm. They know how to draft. The issue is the boatload of talent that they moved for Juan Soto effectively nullified because they didn't get anything close to what they traded. From the mm-hmm. Yankees, mm-hmm. Uh, they, they essentially nullified like four, two to three years of unbelievable drafts uh, to try and go for it all with Juan Soto. And 
you know, maybe that was maybe that was the uh, the death nail for for AJ Preller. That deal, depending on depending on where you look, the Padres have had under, but even before the year or two, I think it was two years before Preller took over, the Padres farm system was number one in a lot of places. It was top three in all the major places: Keith Law, um, yeah. you know, Baseball America, uh, MLB Pipeline. And since he's taken over, they've had the number one farm system three times and a top five farm system seven times and a top 15 farm system every single year, but one. And he's done virtually nothing with it. it yeah, it's it's it an absolute indictment of his ability to build rosters. And that's exactly what a general manager's job is. It, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, essentially we just, but, would you, would you, would you, is there anybody else in the division? Cause we might as well just erase this from the, from the, the rest of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anybody, any other front office guy, any other president of baseball operators, any other GM in this division that is anywhere near the hot seat of an AJ Preller? No, I'm not saying he's getting fired this year, but nobody well, I mean, else can be remotely close. Well, I, 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 I don't think Bill Schmidt in Colorado is anywhere close to being let go. He's been there for like 26 years and he's Dick Monfort's like right-hand man. He, and he's been the know, GM for how long? Like two, two years? three years. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. But I will say one other thing. I, you know, the, the more we talk through this, the stranger it gets. Like he found a way to trade David Shields for Fernando Tatis Jr. He found a way to, to get Jake Cronenworth as a 40-man casualty from the race and he found a way to get trent grisham for i'm trying to remember what he sent over to milwaukee for trent grisham after that uh post or what was it postseason you know botchery by grisham but it, i'm just talking through this and he's acquired controllable talent and he's drafted very good controllable talent it seems like to me at least and it's not like they have any holes in their in their outfield or, or they didn't have any holes in their outfield or in their infield or really behind the plate the the issue is just it seems to me like trading for Juan Soto what he gave up for Juan Soto was like that was the that was the death knell like that was the big move that really cost him uh-huh. can you imagine what you could get for if it was today let's say he didn't make that move can you imagine what you could get for just James Wood yeah yeah, like a number. You could probably get a number. He was an A ball when they traded him, right? He was an A ball when they traded him. So he's yeah, imagine what you, you could get. You could get two years. Ball. You could get two years of a good starting pitcher right now. You could probably mm-hmm. get three years of a number three for AJ uh, CJ Abrams. Like mm-hmm. he just he backed up the Brinks truck for for uh, uh, basically. You know, I I know you say teams are never all in. That fell all in. Mm-hmm. A little bit. A little bit, certainly. Yeah, it, it it did closest as you can get. Yeah, yeah. I, I think when you're, I think when you're all in, you trade everybody for everybody. I, I think you have when you're truly all in, you don't have any legitimate, you know, fifty five, sixty grade prospects left because you've moved them for help. You've done absolutely everything possible, everything viable to win the World Series. Teams don't do that anymore. Um, they used to in the nineties, they don't do it anymore. It's just one of those terms. But anyway, going back to the Trent Grisham thing you mentioned, he did give up Luis uh, Urias and Eric Lauer for Trent Grisham. And, and, okay. you know, it looks like a, a deal that kind of maybe kind of, yeah, pretty much. I'm not saying it's not a good get. It is a good get. Like I look at that trade and I go, yeah, fine. I didn't even hate at the time the Juan Soto deal when they made the Juan Soto deal. But I was like, what else are you going to do to make sure this doesn't backfire on you? 
And it just seems like his GMing abilities just don't exist. It's spend money or draft teenagers, like you said. It, it's it's very strange, very strange. Anyway, that that's the uh, that's the NL West hot seat right there from a GM perspective. I'm with you on Bill Schmidt. It doesn't feel like like Mike Hazen and company are going anywhere anytime soon. No. Uh, the the Giants front office seems very very safe, um, and certainly the Dodgers front office seem seems safe unless those teams you know have have uh, GMs and president of baseball operations folks that want to go somewhere else. It seems like that's uh, that's not changing at all. All right. Uh, is there a player in this division that can make an impact that potentially changes the division results? I don't necessarily mean, Joe, if this player from one of the bottom four teams goes off, can they unseat the Dodgers? I mean – is there someone on the Rockies or the Giants or the Padres that we don't expect huge things from necessarily, but's capable of huge things that can kind of flip this division a little bit and put that team in a position to make the postseason? Whereas if they don't, they're probably not. That's a good question. I, I think the so the immediately immediate guy that sticks out is Fernando Tatis Jr. I, I think he can carry an organization for a ten win season, but. There's a lot of question marks around him. I'm going to give you a different guy that I think could at least push this team into second place. Okay. Assuming the rest of the players perform like they did in 2023. And that's Eduardo Rodriguez in, mm. in Arizona. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I look at Zach Gallon, I look at Merrill Kelly. They've got some nice depth behind that in terms of the, the rotation. They've got eight or nine options. Now some of them are unproven, but I like guys like, Slade Ciccone and and uh, and Bryce Jarvis, like I think they could fill in nicely if there's injuries. But if you look at that Diamondbacks team, I think they're going to score runs. Mm -hmm. If you give me Gallon, Kelly, and Rodriguez all having three and a half win seasons, and Gallon continuing to look like the ace that he is, especially with what some of the the uh, some of the back of that bullpen looks like. I think you can make a case. Now, there's going to be some cannibalism in the NL West, but I think you can make the case that the Diamondbacks could take a step and win 89 or 90 games mm -hmm. and effectively push themselves above. It depends on how you slot them, but you know, I don't. I I would probably take the Padres second in this division still right now. But I think that I think Rodriguez looking like the Rodriguez of old, I think could push them to like 90 wins. Yeah, that's really interesting because I thought about the Diamondbacks uh, as well. I thought about Jordan Lawler here mm. uh, stepping up and giving them, you know, a, a, a two to three win shortstop, even if a lot of it is defense uh, in year one, uh, even though he may not open the season on the 26th man. Um, but I don't know that that really changes the Diamondbacks position. I think they're the second best team. I think they're probably going to finish second with or without Jordan Lawler. I'm going to go with Kyle Harrison, another young player. The Giants added Jordan Hicks to the rotation, which I don't love that idea. We'll see how that works out. Behind Logan Webb, they seem like a bunch of number four starters. Yeah. Uh, Alex Cobb took a step back. Um, but when you look at that team, they, they seem to have a pretty good pen still. Uh, they have some balance on offense. They'll get what appears to be a full season from Casey Schmidt. They added Jung-Ho Lee. Uh, it, it seems like that rotation, though, was you know, one of the five to eight worst in the majors last year. And Harrison has a chance to make some impact, even if he's limited to 130 or 140 innings coming off about a hundred inning season last year, debuted last year, mostly with good results. He only had what, like seven starts at the big league level, but we know about his stuff. It's like 93 to 97, good fastball data, uh, slider, changeup, curveball, probably in that order. 
And if he pulls like a Bobby Miller and is like a two and a half, three, three win guy in 130 to 150 innings, I think the Giants are probably the second best team in this division and have a legit shot at the wild card. But if they don't get more out of that rotation, they might be the fourth best team here. It, it might be Diamondbacks yeah. or Padres second, the other one third, and then the Giants. And then they're only not in the cellar because, well, the Rockies exist, right? So, right. yeah, I, I – and, and Harrison's just my best guess for that. Maybe it ends up being Hicks. Maybe somehow Alex Cobb gets back to where he was a couple of years ago. Uh, I just think Harrison being the guy pushing forward, trending up, uh, having the power arsenal uh, has a shot to do that. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, if you had to go one through five, you mentioned, I mean, Dodgers one, you said you thought Padres two sounds like a tentative two, but two it Diamondbacks, is, Diamondbacks three for you. Yeah, yeah. I think two, three, four is tough because I think anytime you bet against the Giants is is playing with fire. Like they could win seventy, they could win a hundred and seven, just yeah, out of nowhere. Improve, you know. That. Now they don't really have the uh, like the veterans from the old regime that kind of just will their way to ninety wins, ninety five wins. So I think that era in Giants baseball may be in the rearview mirror. So for that reason. I would probably take the Giants fourth, but I def I truly do believe it's a toss up between the Padres and and the Diamondbacks. I believe Bob Melvin is going to have more success in year two. I believe Fernando Tatis is going to have a big year after having what a roller coaster couple of years it's been for him. Mm -hmm. um, I'll never bet against Machado, even though the the metrics are declining a little bit, and you know they've got some nice pieces that are going to stabilize that infield and that outfield we'll see if they're going to have enough pitching, but mm -hmm. I think both the diamondbacks and the Padres are like 86 to 88 win teams. Yeah. The, uh, most projections have the D backs at 85, 86. Most have the Padres about 82, the giants mm -hmm. about 82. And I think that's just because there's been so many injuries, you know, with, with the yeah. Padres and there's so many new players. Like how do you project Jung Holy at this point? How do you project Casey Schmidt? Like I was going to ask, could Jung Ho Lee be the player? Like, could he be the linchpin of the division? Because we've seen now using Ichiro as an, as an example is a terrible example because he's a Hall of Famer. But, but you should do we've it. Seen, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, we've seen players that we don't know what to expect from. Like, they're the scouting reports where maybe this guy should spend a month in double A and get used to the pro pro mm -hmm. game and, and seeing bigger stuff like could he come up like if, if he's a three win, three and a half win, four win table setter. Mm -hmm. in in san francisco you know that could change things a little bit like he could be the guy that changes things and he's got some pieces behind him in that lineup that that can that can drive him in but then you ask the question you know to, to your point with kyle harrison it's like if kyle harrison isn't the guy for san francisco where are they going to get innings you know yeah. brennan beck is hurt um th there's just they need blake snell bad i really think to have a chance they need blake snell they do or something. I mean, even something. signing Michael Lorenzen would would make a lot of sense right now. Get, give me some some stability in that rotation if I can't find yeah. uh, impact. But when you look at um, uh, from an offensive standpoint, when you look at the Giants, it, it seems like there's an opportunity there for them to be average, you know, maybe better than average, you know, from an offensive standpoint. Um, it, yeah. they got some young guys trending up, you know, some of the guys that are risky. I mean, Michael Conforto is still there, but they did trade away Mitch Hanniger. So the in and out of the lineup thing and the injury thing that's gone there. Lamont Wade Jr. is a steady performer. 
Patrick um, Bailey is a dude. Should be an upgrade from what they had full sure. year last year, having him for a full year. Same thing with Casey Schmidt. Uh, J.D. Davis had a good year last year. They don't need him to be a superstar. And you mentioned, you know, adding John Lee. So, yeah, like it, it seems like they should have some balance offensively, lefty, righty, power, speed, contact. It, it just really comes down to that rotation like it does with so many teams, Joe. So many teams. That's why it's baffling. To me, it's more baffling that Jordan Montgomery is still a free agent as we hit record on this show today than it is Blake Snell. I get the reservation about Blake Snell. I do not understand the reservation about Jordan Montgomery unless you're telling me Scott Boris has six and 150 out there for Jordan Montgomery because that's insane. And if they're going to hold to that, he's going to be a free well, agent even for a if, long time. Even if it's four and 90, isn't it like, doesn't yeah. that worry you a little bit? I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez, no, no. Eduardo Rodriguez got four and 80. I'm much more concerned about Eduardo Rodriguez than I am uh, Jordan Montgomery. What if they're both more. just high fours or or low threes? Totally fine with that. Totally fine with that. Yeah, we've it's not seen, my money either. We've seen what both of those guys can do in smaller windows too. Like Jordan Montgomery was really good with Texas. I mean, he had a good year overall, but he was he stepped it up again. I'm not expecting him to be permanently, consistently what he was with Texas, but we've seen that happen, and we've seen that experience with him now pitching in the postseason for a couple of clubs and what he did with the Rangers. Uh, four and ninety done tomorrow. Like I can't imagine. Like if I'm the Rockies, four and ninety for Jordan Montgomery done. Can we if not? I'm the Mariners done. Like any every. I'm just trying to make the point that every team in baseball should want to give Jordan Montgomery four years and ninety million dollars. Blake Snell, if you want to go, ah, let's do some opt outs and let's do some. Let's be more creative. Totally understand that because there are years where he's a two two and a half win guy and not necessarily healthy. I completely get that. Jordan Montgomery, I don't get. Rodriguez gets four and 80, like two weeks into free agency and Jordan Montgomery, who's just as good at least, and certainly more reliable to be in the rotation all year than a runner. Yeah. He, he can't get four and hundred. He can't get four and 90. can't get five and one ten. Like, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it at all. This is where the Padres should be. Jordan Montgomery should be a San Diego Padres starting pitcher. And he's just sitting out there on the open market. You know, the biggest eight. loss, the biggest loss for the San Diego Padres this winter was Peter Seidler. Yeah. Because yeah. in, in every clearly, single way possible, he yeah. was clearly the lead on the accelerator. Mm. Yeah. So I, like I yeah. said, that's what, that's, that's what I mentioned about the Padres earlier. It's like, are the Padres going to be $170 million payroll next year? Like in 2025, we don't know the direction of that organization right now. Cause they're about 160, 165 in terms of cash out right now. And they were 280 yeah. last year in terms of cash. I think out. they're going to end up at 200 this mm -hmm. year. Yeah. Um, but there's no promises that they're going to stay one of the top 10 payrolls in baseball. I, I would actually, I would almost hedge against it. I don't think they can. Here's what's funny about this. Um, I don't think it's humanly possible. They get below 120, considering the guaranteed contracts they have. I mean, is, is Manny True. Machado tradable? Is Tatis tradable? Like technically, yes. Is Cronenworth tradable at this point? He may not be considering the money. he's Cronenworth. Owed. And he obviously Xander Bogarts tradable. Uh, you probably not see the fight with those reading. four guys, right? Yeah, yeah those four guys. Even. That's like a hundred to hundred twenty million dollars with those four guys by themselves moving forward. So I don't think they can get much lower than they already are. So it'll be interesting to see where they uh, where they land. So the Dodgers are the easy pick to win the division. Uh, other than injuries, it seems nothing is stopping the Dodgers from winning this division by by ten games, maybe fifteen to twenty uh, if the yeah. projection systems are uh, are right. Hey, really quick, if I took the Dodgers out, who's the best player in the West? Oh man, the what? Well, <laughs> From a talent assuming, standpoint, it's probably Tatis. Right? Assuming a motorcycle and and ringworm isn't involved, Fernando Tatis 
is definitely the best player. Like he's got, he's a seven win player in his sleep. If he, mm-hmm. now it sucks, he's in right field. And I've said that on this show before. That but sucks. he's awfully good out there too, right? Uh, yeah, but he's a 340 or what is it? $341 million right fielder. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, yeah, bad. I mean, they, they reduced his, you know, his overall value of a deal because of the suspension, but yeah, that's what they gave him. originally. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's clearly, it's clearly Tatis, right? You who, can't think who is it maybe, after that then? Is Corbin it Machado? Corbin, ooh. Yeah. Probably Corbin Carroll. Yeah. Shoot, it, should, it right. could be. Uh, did you remove the Dodgers entirely? Yeah. 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 Then yeah. Yeah. Because there are probably three, maybe even four players at the top of that list that belong in the conversation. I would say, I would say Carroll and Tatis would be racing yeah. each other for that title. Yeah. They're both yeah. going to, they should both get MVP votes. Yeah. Interesting. Kind of a fun division in a lot of ways, just because it it's, it's unpredictable right there in the middle, as you uh, as you mentioned in the Dodgers. I'm okay with juggernaut clubs. I I grew up in the Michael Jordan era of the NBA, and I thought it was amazing that they just kept beating the crap out of everybody. Like I thought that was great. And, and as much as I hated the Patriots in the NFL, I stood back and admired that, just like I stood back and admired the 49ers of the 80s and 90s. Like when you can be dominant year after year after year for as long as, the, like I enjoy that. So I'm totally okay with what the Dodgers did. I thought it was fun to watch over the offseason. I wish more teams got involved and and maybe Yamamoto went to the Giants or something just for parody purposes or something. But uh, I don't have a problem with that. I'm going to have a lot of fun watching you know, the NOS. The difference, though, between the, the Bulls and that was before the Super Team era. That was before the Miami Heat decided we're going to, is collusive a word? Collusively <laughs> throw together a team that um, undercuts parity in the NBA. And it's it's less it's less uh, applicable in Major League Baseball because there is no salary cap. And the Patriots, again, another good example of just a, they, they just got there organically. Um, but with like the Dodgers and and payroll being so much higher than everybody else, and I understand that the, it didn't work for the Mets, that's where the the vitriol comes from the fans. So mm. yeah, it does. Yeah. How many titles did the Miami Heat win though? Not did, one. Did they win, did not they two, win? Not three, not four, not five. No, I think they won three. Did they? Maybe two. What years would this have been? I not know they won two. Okay. I think they might have won three, but okay. LeBron promised five. So <laughs> did he? Did he really? Well, I mean, I he said not four, here. not five, not six. The Heat. I think the Heat only won one. Man, they only got like, one ring. I think so. Like I'm looking at right now, like the Pistons beat the Lakers in 04. and then favorite the, basketball the, team of all time. Maybe that dates me a little bit. But Ben Wallace is one of my heroes. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah. So the, the Spurs beat the Pistons in 05. Then the Heat beat the Mavericks in 06. Then the Spurs beat the Cavs. The Celtics beat the Lakers. Then the Lakers won two in a row over the Magic and the Celtics. Then the Mavericks beat the Heat. Ah, here we go. The Heat won two more in 12 and 13. Were Was the whole Heat super team? I don't think the Heat super team existed in 06. No. LeBron was, LeBron was still. So they won, they won that two. That was Dwayne Wade and Shaq. Right. So they won two in 12 and 13 and then lost the third. So they did get two titles out of that. I don't know. Like, I'm totally fine with that. I'm totally fine with yeah. what they did. There. You know yeah. what has changed a lot over, and we're kind of going off in the left field a little bit here, but I, I think the definition of a dynasty mm-hmm. has changed a little bit just because the expectations, like the Patriots were a dynasty, the Bulls were a Absolutely. dynasty, Yankees of the 90s, 49ers, were a dynasty. Yankees, Cowboys, 49ers. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. like now it's like you got to win. You got to win three rings to be a dynasty. You can't win two. Like, would you call the Chiefs a dynasty even though Mahomes has three? Yeah, I think they're they've probably achieved that, but it's not yeah. it's not I, a conversation I, like it used to be. I think I would. Yeah, I think I think them winning it this year. I think that's a dynasty. Yeah, I think as long as they won another one in the next, you know, three or four years with Mahomes, I think the yeah, I think I think whether they won it with Mahomes or not, I don't think the players necessarily. But uh, when yeah. you win three or four titles in like an eight-year period, I think that's a I think for as good I'm, as the Dodgers are. It seems like yeah. they're at least two rings away from being anywhere near a dynasty conversation. They could win it this year. And that's oh yeah, dynasty. oh yeah. I mean, the Astros are closer than. If the Astros win another one, that is a dynasty. What is six ALCSs in a row? ALCS doesn't get you the claim of, of dynasty, but shoot, yeah. find me another team that's done that in, in recent memory. I mean, four World Series appearances and two wins with uh, two different managers. Uh, that's about as close as it's going to get. I think. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think we're going to see that again. In, in dynasties and baseball think- don't exist anymore. I think what the Chiefs have done is more impressive than what people are giving them credit for. And what the Astros have done is more impressive than what people give them credit for. And that's probably because of the the scandal and all that that went down, you know, six, seven True. years ago. So anyway, that's the NL West. Let's move over to the uh the American League Central. Uh we did the AL uh East last week. Uh the Central, um, man, like a pretty stagnant offseason for for the division as Weird. a whole. Yeah. <laughs> even though like it, the two most active teams were the Royals and the Tigers, mm-hmm. like, and it's not even close. Right. And I think those two teams may have kind of tightened the race a little bit, maybe raised the floor in that division, which is certainly good because we've been, Hey, the two central divisions are the worst two divisions of baseball. It seems like that's been going on for 20 years. Uh, and it's mostly been the American league. And we'll see how the guardians and twins react on the field because they didn't really react much you know, off it over the winter. So when you look at the central, which uh, of those clubs improved themselves the most this off season for you? And I imagine we're going to be talking about the same team here. Uh, maybe not. I, I still think that one of the better off seasons was, was the Kansas city Royals. I, oh, okay. I think they've done well, you know, going out and stabilizing a rotation that has been in flux with Seth Lugo and Michael Walker. I thought those were great pickups. I think Hunter Renfro is a, is a is an applicable nice piece and when you sign your generational superstar mvp uh, you know getter vote getter uh bobby witt jr to an 11 year deal i i think you've i think you've done really really well now could they have done more yes but do you need to do more in the al central <laughs> i think that's the billion dollar question here i think they're relevant now i, yeah, I think me they, too. i think to at least start the season they're relevant i, I think that's a good step forward i mean they had the uh, they had one of the five worst, you know, rotations in baseball last year, and just about every way you can you can look at it. I, I like to look at rotations. The very first thing I look at is very old school. How many innings did the rotation cover? How many innings were they good enough to cover last year? And the Royals at seven hundred eighty-five and two-thirds innings were twenty-fifth in Major League Baseball. You got to figure that's going to get better this year, right? Brady Singer returning, maybe having a better year. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they got some, uh, like Michael Walker is going to come in and give you 140 innings. Probably, uh, you mentioned Seth Lugo, you got to figure that's going to get better. 
so Kansas City should be much better off there. I, I totally, uh, totally uh, agree there. I'm going to go with the Tigers, Joe, um, because for me, I look at the addition of Kenta Maeda. I don't know why that's not getting more play. That, talk about stability. And a guy that misses more bats than he should, uh, he was tremendous for the Twins last year. Um, Jack Flaherty, adding Flaherty back, plus the expected returns of Casey Mize, Matt Manning, Tariq Skubal. Even if, like, I'm not suggesting they're going to get 350 innings out of those three guys, but even if they get 250 out of those three guys, they're going to take a very similar step forward in, in innings from their rotation because they ranked... 25th in innings from their starting rotation last year. They need to get a lot more out of that rotation, and those guys have a chance to be a lot more impactful even than the Royals guys do, the Royals additions do, I think. And, uh, you know, that that uh, the rotation last year was kind of middle of the pack despite the fact that they just didn't give them a lot of innings. So that Tigers rotation has a really good chance to take a gigantic step forward. And I think we all believe to some extent in Riley Green, in uh, Spencer Torkelson and some of the other uh, the bats in that that uh, Tigers lineup, I, I think the Tigers could end up. Man, I don't know. I think the Tigers could end up competing in the division if they get a little bit of injury luck. I, I really do. I think Torkelson's going to take another step forward. Green, when he's back, take another step forward. We'll see what Javier Baez does, but I think there's enough offense there and certainly enough bullpen to support that team winning. You know, I don't know, eighty-five to ninety games, and we'll see where that division goes. Uh, on the other end of things, uh, the team that did the least for me is the White Sox. But I look at this from a completely different angle. They're rebuilding to some extent. So I wasn't expecting them to make like a bunch of win the division now sort of moves. I think we all saw this coming. New GM. We're going to kick things out. So their relative lack of activity to me is mostly they just didn't move on enough from their problems from years past. I would have thought there would have been a lot of value in – like, come on, are they really going to get something out of Yohan Moncada? Let's go find somebody else to play third. But let's, I don't know, release him. Let somebody else, let him be somebody else's problem at $25 million, even though I'm going to have to pay the whole thing. Let me see if I can find a younger third base and maybe grab some of them from my system, maybe an upside play on the open market. Give him the innings at third base. Uh, I don't think they did enough in the rotation. I mean, Chris Flexen and Eric Fetty, they do nothing for me. They're not going to have significant trade value in July. I think the Sox had a bad offseason, but here's the here's the kicker for me. I don't really lay this at Chris Getz, the new GM there. He was in a bad spot when he took over that. Like, it's hard for me to sit here and go, man, Chris Getz, you're not doing your job. Yohan Moncada is still on your team. Eloy Jimenez is still on your team. That's a really tough spot to be in. Those are tough decisions to make. And, and I totally understand, I completely understand why, from a front office performance standpoint, like we're, we still have to just kind of be 50, 50 on gets, I think this off season, but the white Sox didn't do enough, uh, for me, where do you stand in that division? Who, who did the least to improve their situation for you in the American league central? Yeah. I mean, it, it makes for good podcasting and good radio if I disagree, but yeah, I mean, like they are the Chicago white Sox. It's going to be the Chicago Costco in July. Like they're going to be selling. The, wait, 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 they're wait, 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 we're making up words today, so I just thought yeah. I would take a stab. That one, that one's not. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna travel to the Costco on the south. That's not great. Um, <laughs> they're gonna move. They're gonna have more pieces. I mean, listen, they've got enough talent to where it could be like, oh, they you know they could be hovering around five hundred mm -hmm. at the trade deadline, and that would probably be the worst situation for Chris Getz to be in, to be honest with you. But 
you look at that team and you're like, well, if you're Chris Getz, you're selling literally off the whole, you're selling off the whole roster for 70 cents on the dollar. Like Mm -hmm. on Cotta, you'd be getting the least amount of value ever. Jimenez, Robert, you can't move right now. Dylan Cease, you're moving at low value. Um, I thought, I actually thought Chris Getz did okay. And it actually, I thought he did pretty good with a bunch of lottery tickets on the air and bummer trade. Like that was a pretty good deal. I mean, uh, the Braves gave you a bunch of roll four guys that can fill out a big league roster and you hope that one of them turns into a roll five. But I think uh, when I look at these, this offseason for the White Sox, I don't even really I, I just kind of lump in July for this upcoming year with this offseason because, frankly, it's it's all kind of the same process. I think they should be starting over and I think they're going to be a very, very popular team. I think his phone is going to be very, very popular in July. Yeah, I even think a guy like Andrew Vaughn, if he has a good year, gets off to a good start first three months of the season. Any of them. A guy like that could actually be a really interesting guy at the deadline for a team contender. Gavin Sheets. I've been a fan of Gavin Sheets getting moved for a year and a half. I think he's a really good player. I think he's a nice player. Yeah, that's a really good like kind of part-time player that might be able to be kind of your strong mm-hmm. side. Yeah, I've liked Gavin Sheets for a while too. Um, is there a player in this division – that can change things. I mean, I'm not sure who you see. We'll get that in a second. I'm not sure who you, who you see at the top of this division, winning this division. I think it's probably pretty close between at least two teams, maybe three. But is there a, there a player that can change your pick here? Oh, I, you're shaking. There your is. Head. You're nodding your I've head. I've got one. You've got one. All right, let's go. I've got one. I think I think Vinny Pasquantino could push the Royals. You like the Royals. I just think I think they're built well with veterans, with role players, and they've got some exciting young players that can take a step. I thought losing Vinny Pasquantino last year for the season was just an absolute axe Mm -hmm. for the Royals. I mean, so much of that offense was built around him. Mm -hmm. If he could come back from that shoulder injury and be what I think could be a top 10, top eight first baseman in the league, uh, I, I think he... I think he could push them over the edge. I think they could end up winning 87, 88 games, and I think that could win the AL Central. So he would be my pick, especially as you compliment MJ Melendez and and Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, surrounding him. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm going to go with Andres Jimenez. Uh, mm. He was uh, – now, disclaimer here. Um, there's, in my opinion at least – there's no way he's getting back to his 2022 production. He was a 142 WRC plus hitter in 2022. I don't think shame. that's I don't think that's realistic, but he was a little under average last year. I think somewhere in the middle of that is where Andres Jimenez's capabilities are. If he can get back to within about 20% of where he was in 2022 when he was one of the game's best overall players cuz he's a great defensive player. Cleveland may have enough offense to win this division. Naylor and Ramirez are pretty consistent. I actually think Naylor, there might be more power for him to go get. Uh, he fell off, Jimenez did, drastically last year, and that hurt them. They were already a little bit challenged offensively, but his his approach, his contact rates, his batted ball data, there's a little bit of pop in there. I think it's there for him to go get. If he has a good year, like a 115, 120 WRC+, and Cleveland is relatively healthy on the mound, I think they win the NL, the American League Central. But I think Jimenez is the key because they can't give any more offensively and even be competitive. Like if they were to lose one of their top three hitters, like they're done. Like the Twins and the Tigers and the Royals will probably leave them in the dust. They put so much pressure on their pitching staff. I absolutely believe in that rotation. Shane Bieber, the best version of Shane Bieber or not, we've seen them like, I don't want to say, you know, pull good starting pitching out of a hat. 
but we know how good Cleveland is in identifying and, and, and developing good starting pitching. And last year, you know, they had a, a guy that was a rookie of the year candidate in Taylor, uh, uh, in Tanner Bybee. So he's back. Uh, Logan Allen is breaking through Bieber's back. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the exact status of Tristan McKenzie is, but we like him as a, as a, as a guy that belongs in a big league rotation with some mid rotation upside, maybe even better than that. So, uh, under Gavin Williams, my God, got to yeah, talk Gavin, about Gavin Williams. Gavin Williams Gavin, is a monster. And he's probably the best pitcher in that rotation. I think he's got Are, the most upside. Already, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so they kind of have their one, two, three with some upside four, five types, and and you know we know what they have in that bullpen and and uh, and TS and Class A and and uh, that's a probably an underrated bullpen actually. Um, so I, I like Cleveland uh, in, in the division if Andres Jimenez can get back to where he was and they don't suffer a bunch of injuries with their uh, with the rest of their key guys, and that's going to be the case for uh, for most teams. Before we pick a winner in the division. Uh, is there a general manager or president of baseball operations in this division that's that's on the hot seat? Or let me ask it in a better way so we can make sure we get an answer. Which one seat is the warmest for you? I, I You know, I don't know if there is one. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't see one. I, I think the Twins have done a nice job. They've been a continual winner. I think, uh, you know, Scott Harris just got to Detroit. Uh, JJ Piccolo just started with the Royals. Chris Getz just started with the White Sox. Like, I don't and, see and, one, man. And Antonetti and and Turnoff are going nowhere. Antonetti's not going anywhere. Yeah. No, I mean that, that's kind of inferred. I, I yeah. don't think anybody in this division will lose their job. Nor do I think anyone is necessarily all that close. Yeah, I would say if I had to pick the hottest seat, well, I don't think anybody's going anywhere. I, I guess I would lean Minnesota. Because they've spent kind of a lot of money, you know, relative to to that division and relative to to, to the Twins, mm-hmm. uh, the last few years, and haven't done much with it. Uh, so while I don't think they deserve to lose it, I don't think Falvian and Thad Levine are going anywhere. Levine's one of my favorite front office folks in baseball. I don't think they're going anywhere. I don't think they should go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, if they were to fall apart, I think that seat for one or both of them would become very hot very quickly but uh i'm with you on i that. could see like i just it's so it's so weird with the al central because the expectations for better or for worse are so much lower like i, I personally don't think that any of these general managers are held to the standard of even getting to an alcs like it's just mm-hmm. not even the expectation provided the payrolls that everybody is given now that's not to say that they're not aiming and shooting to get there but ownerships mm-hmm. just uh, shouldn't be holding them to that to that standard. So, as long as the as long as the Twins continue to now, you, like you said, as long as they don't fall apart, as long as they win, you know, seventy eight or more games, right? Like maybe that's a number. I don't. I don't think anyone's going mm-hmm. anywhere. They had a uh, one hundred eighty million dollar cash out payroll last year. Yeah, uh, that's pretty high for the pull ads. It's pretty high for the Twins. So that's kind of that's kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, that's really the only, and, and they haven't spent as much this year, but, uh, it's going to end up being relatively close. And I, and I think if they were to fall apart, the seat might warm up a little bit. Uh, nobody's losing their job there. Those guys do a good job there. That, that entire division is, is with Chris gets being the new guy, that entire division is full of very capable front office people, which is kind of strange to say because it's essentially a bunch of mediocre, you know, results in that yeah. division from, uh, from, a from a very wide lens, um, interesting so who wins the division for <laughs> I hate you picking the al central every single year i hate doing it, <laughs> Some I hate team. Doing it. i'm just gonna Some you know I'm, I'm gonna stick my neck out 
I'm going to stick my neck out and say that the Kansas City Royals win it. You're getting a Royals hat for opening as an opening. Listen, listen. I was thinking about I was thinking about, you know, uh, you know, maybe some earrings or something, but I'm going with the <laughs> Royals hat for Joe Doyle as my opening day. I'm giving it away. Like, man, you like this team. I mean, listen, listen to this, listen to the starting rotation and tell me if you don't think it at least has upside. So Seth I don't Lugo. think it at least has upside. <laughs> Seth, <laughs> Seth Lugo, Michael nope. Walker, uh, nope. Brady Singer, who at yes. his best is a yes. good player. Uh, at his worst, it's self-destruct mode. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. Uh, you know, we'll see what they do with with uh, with Daniel Lynch. Chris Bubich is back. Uh, Jordan Lyles is in there. Chris Stratton was also added. Like, mm-hmm. I think they've got the rotation to roll out enough guys on a weekly basis to or on a daily basis to compete every single day. And then when you couple that with Salvador, uh, Salvador Perez is back. Bobby Witt Jr. and Michael Massey is a decent player. I think Garrett Hampson is a really nice addition at the bottom of that lineup to kind of kickstart things. Vinny Pasquantino is there. And then you look at some of those players that had up and down seasons, Drew Waters, MJ Melendez, Kyle Isbell, and maybe, you know, hopefully Hunter Renfro provides you some value with the arm in right field. Like, I think the Royals have, at least on the 26th, the players to compete. My issue with this organization is there is absolutely nothing in the farm system and they have to hope that this team stays healthy. Yeah. I think that's why they were aggressive with some of those fringy guys. Um, yeah. They have know, no reinforcements. Go guys, yeah. Go you guys that may not have the impact, but are going to give us 140 innings or uh, have an opportunity to stay healthy and and be viable. I don't know. This is a team that, yes, they were without Pasquantino and they had some weird things happen injury wise, but this is a team that lost 106 games last year. Yeah, it's I'm going to really lose my job. <laughs> it's really, <laughs> it's really, yeah, but you're going to gain a Kansas City Royals hat. I just, you know? listen, like, that's a pretty I, good trade off. I don't even know me. if it's, I don't even know if it's my conviction in the Royals as much as it is. I look around this division and I don't love anything. I, I like yeah. the Twins, but I don't love anybody. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Twins won the division last year with 87 wins. And they got worse. Wins. Yeah, and they got worse. They absolutely got worse. I mean, they lost Sonny Gray. That alone made them worse because they did not replace Sonny Gray. They but they also lost Maeda. Yeah. And and Polanco's gone now, and they're taking chances on some young guys because you know the payroll's lower. Royce Lewis at third base. Like, there's some upside, Byron too. Buxton and there's some upside in. Is going to be in how much field again? I don't yeah, know. It's like man. how much. How many games does he give you? Like, I guess that's the upside play. That's part of the upside play because when you look at Byron Buck, we know when he's healthy, he's pretty darn good. Uh, and he only played, what, 85 games last year. Uh, he's only played more than 87 games twice in his career. He's only played more than 100 once in his career. Yeah. Um, but he was but he was huge. He was a four-and-a-half win player uh, in 17, a four-win player in 21, a four-win player in 22. Uh, if he's back out there for 120 games this year, I mean, he's a five-win guy, right? Dude, so there's get, some upside there, but it's risky as well to put him back in center field. And, if yeah. you can get 135 games out of Buxton, Correa, and Royce Lewis, then I think they're in yeah. pretty good shape. But you look like yeah. Carlos Correa, what a weird, weird year for him last year. They need mm-hmm. Carlos Correa to earn his money, and they need Royce Lewis and B- Byron Buxton to stay healthy because I, I think if they lose, truly, I think if two out of three of those guys – don't play to their potential 
The Twins mm-hmm. could win 74 games. Yeah. I, I just, there's a yeah. lot of question marks. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of downside there. So you like that you're going to go with the Royals. I, I'm going with the Twins here, but this this really looks like a three-team race to me. I really think the Tigers are going to be in this. Like it, there's some risk there with some of those injury guys. I'm not expecting Casey Mize to give him 25 starts. I'm not expecting Manning to give him 25 starts. Uh, I'm not even expecting Flaherty to give them 25 starts, but uh, if they get 50 starts out of those three combined and they get 25 out of Scooble and they get 30 out of Maeda, uh, I mean, that solves, you know, I don't want to say their biggest problem. Offensive consistency was their biggest problem last year. They have more answers offensively, just organically with yeah. Torkelson, you know, heading in the right direction and Riley Green heading in the right direction. So I think the, I think the Tigers are going to be in this, you know, all year long. So I think it's a three team race. And if you're right, Maybe it's a four-team race, and Chris Getz and the White Sox are just sitting there staring up at everybody else competing. That would be really interesting. That would make that would be the one thing that could make the American League Central really, really interesting. Joe is that four teams are in it. I think the the frustrating thing with the Central is I think five teams could be in it. Ugh. I mean, dude, you have a former Cy Young winner, you have a potential seven-win center fielder, you have you have Andrew Vaughn. Eloy Jimenez and Gavin Sheets, who I think are all capable of being valuable production players. Now, the back end of that bullpen is gone and the back of the rotation is gone. But would it stun you if Chicago won 80 games? It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me in that division. It wouldn't stun me, but it would surprise me. Yeah, it would probably require one of the other teams in that division, like the Royals to be terrible yeah and and there's some pretty big downside i mean we just i just talked about how cleveland if they lose one of if they lose a nailer or a ramirez to injury for any significant amount of time they could tailspin yeah you know they could pitch really well and lose a bunch of three two games and all of a sudden they're done right and then they could end up with 80 wins so there's a lot of that there yeah i don't uh mm, dang yeah yeah, I don't I don't like that White Sox team. I don't like, like that division. <laughs> I don't like Yeah, I mean the division obviously, yeah, the division is is yeah. tough to watch. I would be I think the thing that would surprise me the most is a team in that division winning 90 games. Me too. I'm totally with you I'm on not, that. Yeah. I, I think, think it's more than like I think it's more likely that two teams win 62 games and then one team win 90. I'm serious. Yeah, I'm not even right. kidding. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree there. Yeah, I, I think you're right. W- but which two teams would that be? Well, I hate you're, to you're, backtrack. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but right, like I would not. I would be less surprised if both of if both the White Sox and the Royals lost a hundred games. Then I I I would be more surprised by the Guardians winning ninety than I would yeah. by those two teams losing a hundred. It's just yeah, me too. I will say this division. though: while I while I like what the Tigers have done, there's a lot of risk there because those guys have been hurt. A lot, all the, including Maeda, has been hurt. And you just don't know, even under A.J. Hinch, you just don't know where that offense is is heading. Does it stay in the right direction? Or do some of those young players take steps back? That happens sometimes when you don't have a lot of depth in your lineup. A lot of pressure is on those kids to perform, those 24, 25, 26. You just don't know. So if they have injuries in the road, maybe Detroit ends up being that team that wins 62 games. I don't think that's entirely out of the question either. I think the only two teams that are safe from that kind of a disastrous season are Cleveland and Minnesota. There's just more stability there. Tigers remind me of the 2013 Mariners. You know, it's like, hey, this team has the young players who could be good, but they got to be good. Like, you remember that team was like the the 
the Paxton and Smoke and Nick Franklin and Dustin Ackley and Kyle Seeger ended up being a good player, of course. But like that team was like, hey, we've got six players on the Taiwan Walker. We've got so many players on this team that we need to take a step forward. And they ultimately didn't do that. And so with Detroit, Mm -hmm. it's kind of the same thing. It's like I'm less concerned with what they did this offseason and more concerned with is Torkelson real? Is Riley Green real? And are they going to get any value out of uh, Scooble and Manning and Mize? Because I think that's ultimately going to dictate whether they're any any good. Yeah. I really like Colt Keith. He's one of my favorite uh, prospects. I'm not sure he's going to be great at second, but he should be good enough to yeah. not be a disaster there. I think ultimately he probably ends up at third base. But uh, Matt Veerling, uh, Gio Urshela, provides some upside and floor at third base. With a with Banyas and McKinstry. And adding a guy like Mark Hanna to that that outfield mix, absolutely. I, I uh, And he can also play you know a little bit of first base if you need him to. I, I really like what they did. I, I really do. There, there's, it's a really interesting uh, uh, team. Maybe Parker Meadows continues to provide them some uh, some impactful depth there. And Kerry Carpenter's a pretty good young player too. He's a good player. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, so so they're not without some some role players. And I don't know. I like the Tigers staff. So uh, or the Tigers roster a little bit. So, but but there's risk in that rotation. So uh, certainly. So we'll we'll kind of see how that works. All right. Let's finish this episode off with. Um, uh, with some college baseball, some MLB draft. Let's send everyone into the weekend with some advice, so to speak, with some direction, with some guidance. Uh, college baseball, MLB draft matchups to watch. Uh, Joe, three stood out to me. I'll toss them your way. You tell me who we should be watching in these games. But Florida, the Gators are at Miami, the Hurricanes. There are six players in your top 300 for the 2024 draft in this series, including a top 10 prospect. Tell us who we should be watching. Well, I mean, series. Sunday, you should be watching Jack Caglione. I mean, you should watch Jack Caglione Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the plate. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be his first real test against against good pitching. Sunday, he's going to take the mound, even though he's probably not a pitcher long term, maybe a bullpen guy. Definitely watch Jack Caglione. I think the guy to pay attention to that seems to be at least – uh, pushing his way up boards a little bit, at least in terms of scouting circles, is Colby Shelton. I, I don't yeah. remember where I have him on my top 300. Right now, he's going to be in the top 125. Uh, he's at, at our, 116. Okay, 116 yeah. in your later. Yeah. So he might get a little bit of a bump. I'm, I'm hearing like third and fourth round for him. Maybe he breaks into the top okay. 100. But uh, left-handed hitter, six foot, 190, um, was really a talented player last year at Alabama, and he seems to be a, a well-liked guy in the industry. So, yeah, keep an eye on Caglione, but Colby Shelton is a guy that's kind of tracking up. Now, you mentioned uh, six feet, 190. Is that a second baseman long-term? Is that a third baseman long-term? Does the power fit at third base? He's played first base, second base, third base. You know, Maybe it's a Max Muncy type of guy that rotates all over mm-hmm. the place. Um, he's, yeah. he's still going to put on more weight between now and the time he – uh, debuts he's probably going to end up like a six foot 210 type of a player sure. but um power is his calling card home runs is his calling card so uh that'll be something to watch for who's miami's best draft prospect is that gage zeal yeah gage zeal is probably their best draft prospect he's probably not a pro starter he's probably going to be mm-hmm. in in a relief role but i tell you the guy to watch out for the numbers haven't been amazing but the batted ball data and the body are, are tremendous lorenzo carrier is an outfielder. He's you're not going to see him high on my top 300 because he was terrible last year, but he's 6'5", 225. He's hitting the absolute shit out of the ball. Um sorry for my French. <laughs> he belongs in center field or right field 
And if he plays the way that he's played to this point, uh, the outcomes are going to be better. But facing that Florida staff, I, I mean, you get everything that you can ask for. Because, you know, Cade, Cade Fisher is a lefty on that Florida staff who I've currently got in my top 10 for 2025. So Lorenzo Carrier is, is the guy to watch out for with this game. I think he's the biggest sleeper in the game. Interesting. That'll be fun. Florida and Miami this weekend. Uh, the next one is Clemson and South Carolina. There are seven more top 300 prospects in this one led by, uh, I believe, Clemson outfielder Will Taylor. Is he the top guy on your list from the from this game? I think he is. Yep, yep. And he's absolutely <laughs> – we'll go with it. He is murdering the ball, Jason. He's murdering <laughs> the ball. He had a he had a three-home run game the other night. Um, yeah, I've got mm-hmm. him as a second-round pick right now, and I think he's probably the guy that – most people will need to watch out for, but South Carolina, you know, it's, it's a bit of a weird team. You're probably looking forward a little bit to, to 2025 with this game, but they've got some, they've got some interesting guys. Cole Messina is their catcher. Messina is one of those beloved catchers. Like I've been doing this for this draft class is year six for me, where I'm putting together boards. Cole Messina, I think has the highest like likability score of anybody I've ever talked with. Like people think he's going to be a head coach someday. Um, and then Roman Kimball, who I think I have as a top 200 prospect or something in this 199. Class. Oh, nice. Yep. Yeah. So he's interesting because he's 5'11 and he's got one of those release heights that's like like Paul Seawald low. It's crazy, crazy low with a with a riding fastball and a big curveball. Uh, those would be the two guys to watch out for, Kimball and Messina. That is uh that's fun to watch. I love those uh the angle guys where even if they're starting in college where you can see them getting big outs out of a big league bullpen. Sometimes inside of a year, so I like those guys. Uh, the last one, we're going to go with Texas at LSU. Now, <laughs> Joe? LSU, I'm going to skip L- because they don't really have much. Yeah, <laughs> LSU, like Texas has, let's start with Texas. Texas has, I believe, four guys. Uh, Jared Thomas, the outfielder, was uh, was 49 on your most recent mm-hmm. top 300. They have three guys uh, that also rank in the 200s. T- tell me a little bit about Thomas. Yeah, Jared Thomas is really talented. He might play a little bit of first base for Texas because they, they, they just have trouble throwing together uh, the most efficient defensive lineup. He's a good outfielder. Like He could play center fielder, mm-hmm. center field in a pinch. Um, Jared Thomas, left-handed, 6'2", 185, um, elite approach, very, very high bat-to-ball skills. And I think a lot of people are thinking that he's growing into uh, some game power. Again, I don't have it pulled up, um, but I think Jared Thomas is going to take a jump in my next board, which, which, by the way, for those listening, will come out in about two and a half weeks. It'll come out after two more weekends. Um, but I think he's a top 50 player in this class. He's really, He's really looked pretty good. Interesting. Tell me about Tanner Witt. I know he had Tommy John surgery. What's his situation right now? You have him ranked yeah. in the top in in the two hundreds, but uh, a lot of that seems to be because of the uh, because of the surgery and and that. What what's his situation right now? Yeah, it 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 uh, it hasn't been good. Um, he missed almost all of last season, and when he came back, the strikes were bad. The stuff was bad, and for a guy that was up to ninety seven in twenty twenty two, Tanner Witt has been mostly eighty nine to ninety one. Like it just he hasn't found it. But he's six five two fifteen. He didn't even get out of the first inning last week. Uh, you know, his role might be diminishing. I, I will say, if you wanted to look at a starting pitcher and a big league pitcher uh, on that Texas staff, it's LeBaron Johnson. He's going to be good because he throws ninety seven with a ninety two mile an hour cutter. And he actually has, as of last year, I don't know if it's still the case, but he had either the highest or the second highest release point 
in college baseball is like over eight feet. Um, so a ton of steep angle. He's, he's a good, he's a good one to watch. Uh, interesting. Uh, Johnson, by the way, in two starts has thrown 13 innings, given up seven hits with 14 punch outs and four walks so far in two starts. So LeBaron Johnson also one to watch now LSU, Joe, you're right. They have nobody. They have 10 players in your top 300, <laughs> 10, yeah. 10, 10, by the way, can I just say this, uh, reading about Luke Holman and he's not even the, the number one or the number two prospect on, on your, uh, most recent, uh, top 300. I'm not sure where that lands on your next one or ultimately, but, I love so much about the profile of Luke Holman. I could see somebody, I could see things going well for him this spring and somebody popping him in the, in the bottom half of the first round. That seems like a guy, a team could go, huh? I, I think this guy's a lot better than a second round pick, but uh, Tommy White's your number one guy. Talk about LSU, all the things to watch about uh, the Tigers this weekend against Texas. Yeah, I think speaking on Luke Holman, I think he's probably surpassed, to your point, uh, I think he's probably surpassed Thatcher Hurd in terms of pro prospects. Like Thatcher Hurd has better stuff, like all around, he has better stuff. Mm -hmm. But he's just been, I mean, he's been crushed by a couple of, you know, uh, mid-major teams that weren't expecting to be you know, offensive juggernauts. So there's some concern, I would say, is is the is the way to put it around Thatcher Heard. Luke Holman has been um, dynamite. You know, he's pitched deep into two games. Uh, the fastball is blowing by bats, and the curveball has been sharper than it ever was at Alabama. I, I think you're right. I think Luke Holman could be a guy that goes, if not in the first round, in comp round A. Like, he feels like a pretty high pick right now. Tommy White has been everything you expect Tommy White to be. He hasn't hit the home runs that I think he will, but he's hitting absolutely everything. Um, he did have shoulder surgery last fall, and it held him out of fall ball and spring, so he might just be a little bit behind in terms of timing and things like that. He's not going anywhere. But I'll tell you the guy to watch. There's actually two guys to watch on this team that I think could end up shooting up boards. Uh, one is Gage Jump, who will, he's been used as a closer or a high leverage guy during the weekend, but he's been starting on Tuesdays, left-handed, six feet tall, hides the ball better than just about anyone in the country, up to 95, slider, curveball, uh, just 5'11", six feet tall. I think he could be a guy that goes on day one if someone thinks mm -hmm. he can start. The other guy that I think could jump into day one for different reasons is Justin Lohr, who's a lefty. He was, he was a transfer out of Xavier, 6'2", 195, or 6'4", 220, excuse me. Uh, the thing with Lore is he's one of those guys that throws from an extremely wide angle uh, as a lefty. Like he creates a ton of deception and a really unique look for hitters. That's a giant slider. He's been up to 94, 95, ton of projection left in that long frame. Like Lore and Gage Jump are two lefties that I think both could fit somewhere into the top 75 picks on day one if they both project to start going forward and the thing with these two guys is they would be starting on a friday or a saturday or a sunday for most teams around the country but when you're behind thatcher hurd and luke holman and cam johnson and all these different guys there's only so many starts to go around absolutely crazy luke holman by the way in 12 and a third innings and two starts has given up five hits one extra base hit and has an 18 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio. His efficiency there certainly stands out, even if the statistics don't tell us anything about the delivery and uh, and the stuff. By the way, tell me about one more guy with LSU, Paxton Kling. Uh, he's sitting over 400 so far. 
uh, draws the walks, only four strikeouts. By the way, Paxton Cleaver, I don't know. Tell me, first of all, tell me what kind of a defensive profile this guy has because it looks like he's going to make a ton of contact, even if he doesn't hit for a lot of power. But he's been hit seven times. Do we have like the minor or the, the college version here of Ty France? <laughs> Seven times in eight games? Yeah, man. Uh, nuts. Kling is Kling is interesting. I, back in 2022, he, I, you know, my memory is a little faded, but he might have been the highest rated high schooler to actually get to college in that 2022 draft. He was like a mm-hmm. top 50 prospect for a lot of people in that class. And, you know, he's a big physical center fielder. He moves really well. There's obviously raw power in there, but it's not really his game yet above average runner he's got plus instincts in the outfield he looks like he's going to play center field at the next level although he could slide into a corner just fine um the thing with Kling has been like the metrics have all been good in terms of the hit tool but he's just he he's yet to show off that raw power in games and i think once he crosses that bridge once he starts to show that hey i'm going to be an impactful player at the next level he could be a guy that starts you know inching his way closer to the top 50 but for the time being, I still think he's kind of a third round pick as a guy who like it, it, the whole package suggests that he should hit for some power. But right now it's mostly a contact over power, um, solid average center fielder, above average corner outfielder. One more thing before we go. Uh, tell people in a weekend where you're fully invested, which is every weekend, let's be honest, Joe doesn't have a life. Thank you. Um, sorry, Mrs. Doyle. Sorry, Mrs. Doyle. Um, how you watch these games? Like, what is your setup like? I, I have found it fascinating. First of all, I found it fascinating to hear about people's setup when they watch games. But I, what's even more fascinating to me is how much people care about this because I think people are looking for tips. It's almost like I don't understand why you'd ever want to watch somebody else play video games, but people do that. It's kind of along the same lines. You're looking for like like tips. How does this guy do it? How do you set up to watch games, particularly on a weekend like this with college baseball where there's several games on several different networks and there's so many different ways to watch it, your phone, your laptop, television, yeah. all that stuff. How do you set up and watch a full weekend of college baseball? Well, this is my He's setup. Gonna... It's an incredibly yeah. wide monitor. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's an incredibly wide monitor. I set up six games at a time. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, and yeah, I mean, what I, what I try to do is I just, I go on watch ESPN and I just scroll through the games that are going live at that time. And I also follow most of the programs on Twitter to get updates on when they're on, when they're starting. But I'll tell you what, and I don't know if we announced this before, but we're actually going to be publishing at future star series, I think tonight or tomorrow, and we'll have this all over Twitter a watch so it'll be good guide. for the weekend. It'll be good okay. for the weekend. It'll be a watch guide. And this watch guide will make it easy for you. It'll have every single game outside of the Pac-12 because they run under their own API uh, that's closed. It'll have every single game that is currently going as well as games that are coming up. And next to it, it'll have a link to go watch that game. And next to that, it'll have anybody that's in the top 200 college prospects that we have published that is playing in that game. So I'm hoping... And I've had this before. I'm hoping this is a one-stop shop for anybody wanting to watch college baseball on the weekends. This is incredible. That's awesome. It's something I will use. It's something everybody should use if they're interested. And they can actually go, who am I going to get to see if I click into this game? That's remarkable. That's excellent. Yeah, it'll be easy. It'll be scrollable. And it should be, I think you and I have talked about this, it should be on the homepage at Future Star Series. 
a really easy link. And if it's not this weekend, it will be moving forward, but it'll be all over my Twitter. So you can find it there. Yeah. We'll make sure uh, we announce that with the, uh, with the future star series and the FSS plus Twitter accounts uh, as well. Really, really cool. Really, really cool. This is the time of year. Like I mentioned at the top where we're really close to every level of baseball playing meaningful games, high school's underway. College is obviously underway, but in, in about four weeks, the pro side minor leagues and the big leagues uh, get going as well. So much to watch, so much to keep track of. This is the kind of thing that will keep it, keep it clear and crisp and sharp and easy for you to, uh, to make decisions. Ooh, I'm going to watch this Florida LSU game. And then I'm going to move over and I'm going to watch my white Sox play the guardians or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, really good stuff. Really good stuff. So next week we will, uh, we'll jump to another division, probably do the American league West and then and uh, then finish up with uh, uh, the NL East and the uh, NL Central, the uh, the two weeks leading up to the start of the major league season. But the college season rolls on, the amateur season rolls on. Joe, one thing I want to uh, I want to plant before we get out of here, I want to ask about some high school prospects next week. Um, we get the updates on the Connor Griffins of the world, but I want to dig on a couple of guys maybe who early enough in the year. I mean, some of these kids have started to play already. Some really haven't. But if there's a couple of kids that stand out um, and what impact it might be having on their uh, on their status to either go to school, get drafted, their their uh, their ranking, things of that nature, uh, let's jump into the prep ranks just a little bit, even if it's just one or two guys. I love that uh, next week. So if you're so if you're out there thinking about what about the prep kids, you know, we'll we'll start jumping into that uh, certainly next week. Uh, Joe, as always, uh, great stuff. Great stuff. We'll uh, we'll announce the uh, the watch guide uh, when that hits the website certainly, but. Uh, Florida, Miami, Clemson, South Carolina, Texas, LSU, tons and literally dozens of prospects in those games. LSU has 10 by themselves, so that's absolutely crazy. Um, Great stuff. Uh, Have fun over the weekend. Uh, We'll talk next week. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the FSS Plus Podcast. So just chill to the next episode.